0: Welcome to a podcast on fire on Magic Crystal. Uh, Wong Jing makes his Wong Jing film, which means he steals from all other films. But he lets his uh, action director be the star of the show as well in Magic Crystal from 1986. My name is Kennedy, and with me is uh, Paul Fox of the uh, recently uh, resurfaced uh, East Screen, West Screen podcast. So hello, buddy.
1: Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Always happy to be here. Happy New Year.
0: Happy new year indeed. Uh, this is going to be, re- be released in about May, I think. No, I'm going to get this out <laughs> fairly quickly because there's already a significant portion pre-recorded of this show. So this show is not only going to uh, no- normally, it's just our uh, the background notes and our views within this episode. But uh, I scored a little rare front row insight into the making of the film at hand, Magic Crystal. And that uh, rare insight is not from Wong Jing, he's not on here, but from one of its actors. And in uh, this case, uh, this episode will feature a conversation with Karov himself, i.e. the one and only Richard Norton, is going down magic crystal memory lane in an extended conversation mid-episode. So uh, we're not going to be the stars of the show necessarily, me and Paul. uh, We're going to let Richard uh, share his memories of uh, of uh, working for Wong Jing and uh, the action team and Cynthia and Andy Lau and all that good stuff. So look forward to that in the middle of this episode. But uh, we are going to get going, of course, for all your Podcast on Fire network needs. Uh, Use our website, podcastonfire.com. But you can find us, of course, on Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and wherever you find podcasts. And uh, we are on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. So check out our updates, uh, over there, so I'm gonna keep it uh, sweet and short and simple. And uh, at the time of recording, uh, like uh, literally like yesterday, a little like ding popped up on my phone, like a new East Screen West Screen podcast. Uh, we we're, um, we're we're getting them uh, infrequently, and uh, not that that's uh, a bad thing or a slam against you, like produce, produce, damn it. But uh, it's very nice to see it uh, happen uh, when it happens. When you find something. Uh, that you can select that makes sense for your show and where your schedule can align at the same time. So for the first uh, episode, hopefully, of many of East Screen or West Screen, the podcast, what uh, film did you pick for coverage?
1: Yes, we talked uh, about uh, Louis Ku's science fiction epic Warriors of Future. That's the Warriors of Future, not uh, of the future, as I have <laughs> incorrectly called it a few times. It's
0: it's it sounds like a very Hong Kong title, like Warriors of Future. Is there supposed to be a in there or whatever?
1: It's a it's a very Hong Kong title, and but interestingly, it's not a very Hong Kong movie, not not as you would expect. So um I urge listeners, if you haven't checked it out yet, uh, please do. It's globally released on Netflix, so it should be pretty easy to access. And I think we both really, really came away enjoying it. I was really surprised by um the level of quality in terms of the visual effects that they put into this. We'd heard things over the years, um, both good and bad because it was delayed. Um, but yeah, uh, don't let the title put you off. Um, if you like science fiction, if you like Louis Ku, if you like Hong Kong cinema, go and check it out and then uh, give us a listen.
0: And w- w- was this in, like release limbo due to a long post-production period do we know that or was it in release limbo because um, no there was no takers <laughs> what was the deal here
1: no um it was it was a combination of of post-production and some editing and censorship and then covid and just a a whole lot of different factors uh led to it um, But eventually they, you know, uh, got it worked out and uh, it, it's there. It's available for consumption. Unfortunately, box office wise, it was not doing very well in the mainland, which is where it was, I guess, the market was originally targeted for. But um, because Lewis is like a one man show, holding up Hong Kong cinema with his production company. So it did really well in Hong Kong because a lot of people, you know, were like recognizing the fact that uh, Lewis has done a lot for the industry and whether you like him or not as an actor behind the scenes with what he's been producing and what he's, you know, the artists he's been supporting through, film productions you
0: you mean like George Lucas he's been supporting that artist through his collection
1: (laughs) (laughs) well that and 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 possibly many toy companies too (laughs) but I'm I'm thinking more in terms of just uh, the uh, local production of Hong Kong films um, through his his one cool production house and things like that so um, yeah if you haven't already done so uh, like I said don't be put off by the name please give it a shot even though it
0: was it actually, is if I understand correctly, understand correctly, the most uh, profitable Hong Kong movie ever. That's not a guarantee that it's gonna break even just yet, because it was a f- quite a high budget production. If I understood correctly,
1: yeah, it was was a high budget production, and um, I you know I don't think the writing's really out there yet to say whether this is successful enough to um, launch a franchise. But this was, of course, a long passion project, a long time passion project for Mr. Ku, and I, for one, would love to see more. I don't know if we'll get that opportunity, but um, I'm glad he was able to finally get this out to us.
0: Yeah, it sounds like fun. I haven't seen it yet, but it, it sounds like uh, undemanding fun, and uh, that that's okay. That there, uh, there's no need to make things uh, any more complicated than that. Uh, so, so it's cool that we, have, we we got a global release uh, at the end of last uh, year and uh, that it got this grand, successful local release as well rather than just going to Netflix, um, which I'm sure is, uh, is good money, uh, but not, not enough money for a big production like this. So, uh, Lewis has to design a, a good limited... Uh, 4K edition for home video as well, something life size. We
1: we can hope. I mean, that's one of the things we get into a little bit on the episode. Is you know the idea of where where is physical media in this in this era when you have companies like Netflix buying up things like this, like Warriors of Future, and Disney Plus buying things like the Anita series, which they said is a global release, but isn't truly a global release. Um, like Netflix has done.
0: Were you able to see it uh, properly or did you need a VPN, the crap out of that, to watch Anita?
1: I, I have not been able to see it yet because the only way to see it in North America is to do the VPN thing. And I have friends who've done that, but I haven't jumped on that boat yet. Um, I keep hoping for a physical media drop. But with these kind of deals, you never know when is that going to happen, when is that going to come, uh, if if at all. Um, so.
0: And Lewis was in that as well. The Anita film serious series. Yes. Uh, because oh, uh, what Disney did, they 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 promoted it as a director's cut, but it was split up in two episodes, right?
1: Yes, yes.
0: So uh, hopefully that gives a more full picture than uh, than a film uh, could, because it's uh, it's not a short career. It was cut short, sadly, but obviously it was a mighty career for uh, for Anita Moy, so you don't do that in 100 minutes and do justice uh, that way to an, to an icon we'll uh we'll see when i get my hands on it Uh, so we are gonna get going it's of course concast.com and wherever you get uh, podcasts for east screen west screen so check it out Uh, and uh, we're gonna get going play a little bit of uh, music from magic crystal from 1986 and then we're gonna do a a little bit of a plot a little bit of a background richard norton is going to come on for a, for a good hour and uh, paul and i are going to do the review after that so that's the structure of the show but uh, listen to a little bit of uh, music from magic crystal maybe that awful awful synthesizer track that plays as they go to the fairground uh, andy lao wong jing a little uh pin, pin. Uh, that, that, was sub, that was subpar and then some and I loved every second of it, that, uh, that music, so uh, let's, uh, let's go with that and, uh, and uh, we'll be right back. And welcome back and uh, first of all the plot of Magic Crystal from the love HK film review of the film uh, and to quote Kosos' plot that uh, opens in a humorous way, it's the prequel to the Wesley's mysterious file. Well, not really, but Magic Crystal has some things in common with the 2002 sci-fi stinker. One, they were both written and uh, directed by well, it was Andrew Lau. Uh, in the case of uh, Wesley, by questionable Hong Kong director Wong Jing, and both feature Andy Lau as an adventurer hot on the trail of some pseudo-science fiction hokum designed for mass appeal and a planned special effects budget. I mean, the Wesley's Mysterious File special effects budget, not that Better or, or or execution, rather, not not that much better than Magic Crystal. One could argue. Uh, however, Magic Crystal takes itself much less seriously than Wesley's. So it's uh, it's about a Magic Crystal, a green glowing rock that houses the essence of an ancient extraterrestrial. And Ilau is. Andy, I think there are different names across translations, who finds himself caught between evil Russian bastards led by Richard Norton and some Interpol agents uh, played by Cynthia Rothrock and Max Mock. Uh, for possession of the Glowy Rock. The Rock actually starts in Greece, in the possession of Philip Ko. But thanks uh, but thanks to some quick thinking, it ends up in the luggage of Andy's nephew, played by uh, Xu Bingbing. Uh, the kid quickly bonds with uh, the Green Rock, uh, which uh, talks via telepathy and does the E.T. finger touching shtick via acrylic paint special effects. The Rock also plays jokes on the likes of uh, Wong Jing, who plays Andy Lau's assistant, and uh, plays jokes on the ever-annoying Nat Chan, who plays a scummy suitor of token hot female Shala Chungman. Still, despite its uh, resemblance to a chunk of green styrofoam, The Rock remains on everyone's wish list uh, enough that uh, Andy gets thrown in jail even though he has no idea what the big deal is. So there's your little global plot here, uh, It's a, it's an epic film, Hong Kong and Greece. The Wong Jing formula, as as you know, commercial as it seems, wasn't leading the pack box office wise that year. Uh, Magic Crystal uh, had a box office of 11 million Hong Kong dollars, and that fell behind hits of 1986 such as John Woo's A Better Tomorrow, at 34 million. Aces Go places four. The Ringo Lam entry did 27 million. Whereas Officer Chuba, starring Sam Hong, earned 16 million. Lucky Stars Go Places, that did feature Andy Lau, earned 23 million. And uh, other Wong Jing-produced joints and ones he started, like Ghost Snatchers, uh, earned merely 6 million. So. I I don't know the timeline sort of uh, offhand now, but we obviously know that he would become the king of the box office in subsequent years, especially with the God of Gamblers series or anything sort of gambling-related, whether that series or Casino Raiders and then making Stephen Chow comedies, of course. So um, this was not um, his time just yet. Uh, At the Hong Kong Film Awards, uh, Magic Crystal wasn't uh, nominated, uh, but Tomorrow was named Best Film. Chiang Fat, Best Actor, Sylvia Chang, Best Actress, for her performance in Passion, which she also directed, co-starring George Lam. And Magic Crystal um, was not even in the final list of nominees in the Best Action Design category. It would have had a shot in there, but uh, that year Ching Su Dong won for his work on Witch from Nepal. While the teams working on *Writing uh, Wrongs*, *Peking Opera Blues*, *Royal Warriors*, *Martial Arts of Shaolin*, the Jet Li film, *And Twinkle Twinkle Luck* and *Twinkle Twinkle Lucky Stars* were also nominated. W- we're essentially going to leave you alone for a bit here, but I might as well ask Paul if, uh, if you have any have any notes here. Were you surprised that this uh, wasn't uh, a big hit for Wong Jing, or you you sort of uh, know in, in the back of your head as well that his time was coming? He wasn't um, ruling the the box office and uh uh, earning the hearts of uh, moviegoers just yet
1: yeah i think that uh, once we get into some deeper discussion we might uh, touch on some of the reasons why i don't think this was um, as big big a success as it uh, might have people might have expected back in the day and uh, we'll probably get into some of his later filmography uh, as well so
0: we're, uh, we're going to leave you alone for a bit. We're not going to be here for a bit now, because uh, for the next hour I'll be chatting to Richard Norton about his uh, experiences making Magic Crystal, playing Carov, and uh, fighting his heart out, and uh, then uh, Paul and I will be back to discuss our views on uh, on the film. So this is a, a special, a bit more lengthy podcast on fire, but uh, we really utilized the opportunity to get to hear what it was like having this front row seat making magic uh, crystal because uh, obviously Richard was brought in to do his parts. he wasn't aware of the Nat Chan bits let's just say <laughs> you know so it was kind of uh, they were making different films here and then combining it into in, into what it is and uh, we will share, share later in the episode what uh, we think about it but um, regardless uh, sit back and enjoy I certainly did chatting with Richard and uh, we'll be back in an hour or so and welcome back, listeners. Here's our little middle section that we uh, teased and announced at the top of the show. And uh, to set it all up a little bit, uh, we're going to talk to someone who had a front row seat watching the different sometimes very weird facets of Magic Crystal being created and that very person was uh, Richard Norton and I'm very delighted to have him back for a third time actually, this time specifically going down Magic Crystal memory lane. So he is fresh from working on the latest Mad Max. And uh, we're very happy to have him uh, in between gigs here and uh, not completely exhausted or anything. So I want to welcome him back and thank you very much for taking the time despite um, com- coming off a big uh, film shoot, Richard.
2: Yeah, thank you, Kenneth. It's it's good to be back with you. Yeah, it was a great shoot. We've just done, well, it's a long shoot, the latest Mad Max franchise. And um, like we were talking before this, you know, just to be involved in such an iconic uh action franchise especially an australian one is mad max it doesn't get better than that so feeling very fortunate
0: is this like the um 12 ma- uh, like or was it literally like a year-long process uh, for you um considering you you have to do prep for uh, doing uh, fight coordinating and uh training and so forth or how long have you how long have you lived uh, the latest mad max i suppose
2: You know what, not not quite as long even as the last one with this one, because there was a separate, the gentleman I work for, Guy Norris has a pre, you know, he does motion capture and everything else at company. They did a lot of the previews. you know, in the studio up in Queensland. So uh, I didn't have to be there for a certain amount. So I, I would say nine months, you know, overall on this one. Uh, the previous one, Fury Road, it was a little different in that I was in South Africa for a number of months training South African stunt tees for, to get ready for the movie. And then there was the shoot, this one being in New South Wales in Australia. So just a short plane ride for me made it a little bit better. Uh, but it's, it's still a long involvement. It's still another what nine months out of your life. So either way you look at it, it's still quite a commitment, but a great one.
0: And coming out of, you know, we're not completely through it, but coming out of the worst of the pandemic, uh, meant, I suppose, this production could be, you know, executed a little bit more smoothly, I suppose. Uh, or what's your thoughts on that? Uh, what are a lot of restrictions, despite?
2: Yeah, no, still restrictions because the Screen Actors Guild has certain protocols that you have to follow. You know, the union mm-hmm. and that. So. And, of course, the problem with a shoot like this, if your leads or your director or whatever come down with COVID and they're stuck at home for a week or more, that affects production. So it meant that uh, people had to be vaccinated. And also, unless you were in front of camera, you had to wear a mask at all times. You had to do a rapid antigen test every day before going to set. And SAG players had to get a PCR test, you know, every two times a week, as it were. And even given that, of course, aspects of crew came down with COVID. Some of the leads came down with COVID. George even came down with COVID. So it doesn't matter what protocols you have in place, you're always subject to uh, infection. And as a result, yes, we had to still be very careful. It wasn't, though, all the... Lockdown procedures have suddenly vanished, you know. It's a matter of looking after the production.
0: Well, as serious as that is, uh, did they make some sweet uh, Mad Max uh, face masks for you guys, though? No,
2: we we had what the general plebs would have, you know. We didn't get anything special, but that's okay.
0: Well, uh, I'm glad you came out of it uh, in, uh, in good health. So uh, I guess my last or spontaneous question on that, are, are you sitting in at all on uh, some post-production work or, you, or you're officially done with uh, with your part?
2: No, I'm officially done. The only thing would be if they ended up doing any reshoots or extra shoots, which often happens with uh, you know larger movies. I don't know whether that'll happen. And if it did, it would probably be sometime early next year but again i have no idea whether that's going to be the case at least for me
0: well excellent we're looking forward to some kind of teaser some um uh, i don't know if they're even going to put out the teaser in 2023 i, I think I saw, uh, I saw i saw a release year uh, 2024 so who knows when a teaser will come out but uh regular to hear it's um uh, here's back so and uh that uh A key component like yourself and a key component like George is uh, still on board uh, making this. uh, That is uh, mighty special. And uh, and it's been like a long franchise and uh, it's uh, lived a life. Hong Kong cinema has lived a life and uh, you have lived a life. In Hong Kong cinema so there's your uh, transition for you and I believe we touched a little bit on Magic Crystal in our previous chats but th- this is going to be uh, as specific as we can make it I suppose based on uh, what is stored in the memory bank and uh, so forth but uh, if you go by release dates Magic Crystal could be considered your third Hong Kong film and, um, and the second to come out that year 1986 after Millionaire's Express. So. I'm completely ignorant about the film industry in general because I haven't lived lived that life. So so I was wondering if you remember, how were you getting jobs after your first Hong Kong film? Uh, Were were people shopping you around Hong Kong because you had been in Twinkle Twinkle Lucky Stars? Or or did offers come to you based on performance and impact and notices uh, after working on Twinkle Twinkle?
2: Yeah, no, it, it's the latter it's exactly what you just said. I I it's not like I was going off to work in Hong Kong. You know, my first wo- uh, job with Twinkle Twinkle Lucky Stars, Samahong and Jackie, I mean, that was that originally started with a friend uh, of mine and Chuck Norris's who worked on The Big Brawl. He worked on The Big Brawl and he happened to recommend to Jackie that I would be somebody maybe good for one of his movies. I was in Japan on a tour, you know, as you know, I was doing personal bodyguard work for rock and roll bands. And I got a call when I was in a little place outside of Osaka with uh, an Asian lady asking me if I could come to Hong Kong and work with Jackie on a movie. It turned out that they wanted me within three days. And I said, well, I can't because I'm on tour for another three months. Couldn't do it. And a cut to uh, me, them contacting me regarding Twinkle Twinkle Lucky Stars. So, it, again, I it's not, you know, even though I'm a martial artist, I wasn't one of these people who watched every Hong Kong movie and knew everything that was going on there. You know, I was aware of them, of course. So when I got off of Twinkle Twinkle, it was due to that recommendation from a gentleman named Pat Johnson, and uh, off I went. So that's what established me in Hong Kong. You know, you've got to, I often say to people, if you if you get to work in a movie with Jackie Chan and Sammo and you kind of involved with the Jackie Chan stunt team, that's a huge credit. You know, there's not a lot of people get the chance to do that. So the fact that I did it, Everybody was very aware of the Guaylos or the Westerners that would have been working on a shoot like that. So I think that's brought what's brought me to the fore because a, a lot of, you know, I, at one stage I was the only Westerner to ever get asked to do more than one movie with Jackie. It was, you know, especially the Hong Kong movies, not so much the later movies you did in, in the West, but... So that was, that was quite unique. And it also meant that you, they, they knew that someone like Jackie wouldn't use me in a couple of movies without them being very confident. I knew how the Hong Kong movie system worked. You know, I knew the style of shooting. I would just kind of keep my mouth shut and do what they asked me to do as many times as it took. And I think that was, that was the sort of credit that led to me getting contacted about Magic Crystal
0: uh, yeah, yeah, I was I was thinking of that um, impact um, that uh, and a rep that uh, is created through appearing in uh, what is really a big movie with big yeah, profiles. I remember talking to um, uh, Bruce Fontaine about uh, his time in Hong Kong, and he made a, a movie called Curry and Pepper, which is a lethal weapon uh, style film, and, and not terrifically big or anything, but. Uh, he was seen and the impact was there. The rep was created based on his performance in the film. So I can just imagine that uh, the, there is that ripple effect when uh, when doing well and appearing in films and uh, and the, then the work uh, comes to you whether you're uh, able to do it or not. I mean, did you, uh, was there an extended stay in Hong Kong there for uh, around 1986? Or uh, did you uh, fly back and forth uh, between countries at that time?
2: I basically flew in for the movie and once it wrapped I flew out. You know, I didn't hang around Hong Kong and that's you know, relation to questions it's not like I sort of did the movie and then looked around for a local agent for instance to see what other work I could get because fortunately I still had considerable amount of work being based in the US now albeit low budget action movies but still I was continually working so it wasn't like I felt I needed to stay in Hong Kong and, and search out other other productions as it were, you know, so I just I would take off, you know, and like I've had people ask me, well, for instance, when you first went to Hong Kong to work with Jackie Chan, were you nervous and, you know, going to work with one of the most amazing action Figures in the world, and I said, Well, not really, because i didn't know that much about jackie it 's not like I followed that type of film
0: you don 't have time to be nervous. they want you short dated apparently, so you don 't have time to build up those uh those irrational thoughts
2: it's not even that it 's just i didn't know what to expect you know for me, it was just another movie, and it was just another gig, of course, I was nervous when I got there because it was such a different way of shooting, you know with no real script, no real storyline. The story's kind of written and made up as you go. Mm -hmm. You rehearse on camera. There's no big rehearsal process. Mm -hmm. So that was very different for me. So maybe in my ignorance I went over not being nervous, but when I got there I realized, boy, this is a different animal. (laughs) You know, I've jumped in.
0: And they don't ask you back if you don't measure up to the standards of Hong Kong Action Cinema, but the standards of Jackie and Sam, which are even I know that very high. There, there needs to be impact. There needs to be power. There needs to be flow. There, and if you if you're not uh, if you're not good enough, then you're certainly not asked back uh, because that that won't benefit the movie. But clearly, you were asked back, and that uh, is that wonderful streak. Uh, actually, uh, free movies is a is a big thing, and uh, Millionaires Express is obviously. You're, you're one of many about what a spectacle that is to uh, to still get a little signature scene in there despite being in be, being amongst such a big big cast. Uh, and magic crystal is sort of decidedly smaller but nevertheless uh, this uh, fan favorite that has uh, grown over the years uh, and b- before we get to some specifics. Because you weren't based in Hong Kong, were you at all interested to sort of monitor how, how your films performed at the box office, if they were a success in Hong Kong or not, or you re- you didn't really personally care or uh, concern yourself with uh, critical notices and box office returns?
2: No, I didn't, Kenneth. I, 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 in fact, still to this day, I hardly ever look at how something that I've been in has performed. You know, again, it, it's it's... I guess I'm like a lot of actors, sometimes you work in the shoot, you do it, you put your heart and soul into it at the time, and then you move on, and you're getting ready for the next production. I don't often linger, I don't often watch previous stuff that I've done, I mean, I might see it when it first comes out, Mm -hmm. and that's it, you know, you move on because it's done, You, you look at it, you try and learn from it, you try and figure out what you thought you did well, what you thought you didn't do quite well, and learn from that. But really, it's just—it almost becomes like a past story, you know. I, I've got so many copies of the movies, and I don't think I've ever looked at them more than once or twice after having performed in them.
0: And sometimes, because especially the case, though, of Magic Crystal, uh, you 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 don't know what the entire package is like, and the entire package is quite. Uh, tonally wild as Hong Kong films were at the time. I mean, you, you had your action bits. So I guess it was a, kind of a surprise, uh, uh, if you ever watched it at least once in full, that oh, they're doing that. Uh, they're doing Silly Stick. I thought we were doing hardcore action. Okay, it's family-friendly, it's, it's audience-friendly, family audience so you go for it, Wong Jing.
2: Yeah, well, you know, because it, it, this was no different from the other movies they did in Hong Kong, in that as I said earlier, they're pretty much writing the script as they go to a large extent and that means the fights also you know when a lot of the fights are choreographed um, certain most of the time they didn't even know how long the fight's going to be or what direction it's going to take they let it unfold so it's very spontaneous which is mm-hmm. really interesting you know in that you know, you'll, you'll do whatever amount of moves, and one day they'll do a quick edit, and then they'll figure out which direction and how they want the fight to progress, how long it's going to be. So me as an actor being on set, I have no idea what that process is. I have to just wait until I'm kind of shown what the next techniques are, you know, what's required. We'll rehearse on camera. Remember, these are the days of film. It's not digital, but they would still just have you rehearse on camera and whether you did 5, 10, 15 or 30 takes, you just did however many it took to get the take that the director, in this case, um, Wang Jing would be happy with, you know, and you're right. You know, I, I had no idea of the other stuff that was being shot because I was only on set for my particular sequences. To see the end result when it is all cut together, it, it kind of puts a big smile on your face because yeah. the emphasis is on comedy and and it's just fun to have a look and see yourself portrayed and portraying a character that you would never normally do, you know, in, in my Western sort of film life. So that's, that's kind of fun in itself.
0: A character that they... Uh... At least in uh, the dubbing process, uh, crafted that asks uh, knowing twelve different Chinese dialect, I am willing to bet a buck that this was not well, part of the the knowledge that you had going in.
2: Yeah, not even slightly. <laughs> in fact, you know, Cynthia and I are probably, you know, usually the the only sort of English speaking people aside from a couple that had some sense of English. So it's it's quite interesting from that point of view. It's like them and us, you know, and you just wait, which is why a lot of the stuff you do, it's really done by imitation of actual physical movement, you know, because it's very hard to get into a whole sort of translational dialogue as to what the scene's going to be. But but again, like you pointed out, I I was very aware of that on Twinkle, Twinkle Like Stars that, and I've said this before, there was... um. You know, a Japanese Kurata-san, I call him. Kurata was a very well-known actor. He'd done like, over 40 films when I first went, worked on Twinkle. And he saw when I first started doing the fight, I got a little frustrated because the timing was different, the choreography is different to what I'm used to. It certainly, they weren't moves that I would normally do. They weren't really interested in what I would do. It was all about, again, what they wanted And he was the one, when he saw me getting frustrated, he said, Rich, he basically said to me, if you want to do these sorts of movies here in Hong Kong, don't say anything. He said, it's their script. It's their movie set just do it as many times as they ask you you know without questioning without trying to show how tough you are whatever it is and i took that advice and i believe that's what led to me getting you know i think i did five movies in hong kong overall and it was because i believe they knew that i wasn't going to come in as a loudmouth westerner and, and basically step outside the parameters that i would just do what they wanted, I understood the process and I would do it as many times as I looked, take the hits, take the bumps, you know, I was always in really, really good shape and I didn't mind all the contact, so I think that's what led to the, you know, the following work from Twinkle Twinkle um, City Hunter and of course you know, movies like Magic Crystal
0: And we, we, you, you talked of uh, Yasuke Korata who is obviously uh, the real deal but in Magic Crystal we have a Performer, an actor singer like Andy Lau, who was as dedicated of an actor as you as you as you can get, which meant the different genres the uh, drama comedy and so forth, and action films and me as a fan i i so i know that Andy Lau doesn't have a full on martial arts background, but I always admired especially around this time, that he was a non martial artist that engaged as much as he could doubled at points which uh even the big martial artists are so so that, that was always adm- admirable to me that he uh sank his teeth into this as well as he could so so from your perspective if you even remember because you have a couple of uh, one-on-ones with Andy Lau, do, do, do you remember forming some impression of um, who who he was uh what skill set he was uh coming into the production with and how he performed uh, or
2: well again you got to realize this I believe this is virtually Andy Lau's first movie coming out of television so he was a real novice and even if he had already done movies I doubt I would have been aware of him as an actor so for me I'm just coming on set this is a person I have to interact with and he he was like he's just a, such a nice man you know he was gracious he 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 committed himself 100% to what he was doing. And I don't care who it is, I will always admire and respect whether an actor or a performer just commits 100% to the physicality of what they're doing and everything they're involved in, meaning that sometimes you'll get on sets and you realize certain people are really there just because of the paycheck. And it's, it's always refreshing when you get an Andy Lau who, again, is just interested in giving the best performance he can and as a result throws himself into the physicality even if it's not his thing. And I think – I don't think you would know that. Looking at his performance in the fights and everything, I think he was just – he did admirably, you know, in this movie. And that's a testament, a testament again to his commitment to doing the work to be the best possible – You know, representation of that character that he could be.
0: Absolutely. There's a particular point I was very very impressed by uh, during the end fight when you're armed with the size or the scythe weapons, and you you have an exchange with Andy that ends with him. It's a pretty long take, and it's you guys. It ends with him jumping up and uh, headbutting you, which is uh, like this intense exchange that at least 15 or 20 moves before at the end. He's gonna jump up and obviously fake headbutt you. I hope anyway. That was fair. That he didn't uh, make contact. But it's
2: in it, Hong it, Kong, you never know.
0: You never know. <laughs> it might be better for us viewing audience. Like that looks kind of real, and <laughs> right. that's because it was. Uh, but but it's, it's wonderful to hear that you form that in in impression of him because he shows up on screen uh, really.
2: Oh, and also the longevity of his career after that is again. That's that's why you know. There's people ask well how do certain people end up having such incredible careers? And again, I would say it's the passion and the commitment to each project that they're on. And I think that's what you see with Andy. In other words, if Andy had sucked in Magic Crystal, action-wise and everything else, I doubt you would have seen him again, but we all know he became as big as Jackie Chan post Magic Crystal, you know, uh, after numerous movies.
0: Yeah, and really an ambassador for Hong Kong film as well, trying to fly the flag of the hong kong film which is needed nowadays because uh, it, it isn't in its uh past glory nowadays or anything but uh, he's really been that uh, ambassador for for nurturing new talent as well whether making action films or, or other genre films so um, that that's uh something i admire him for as well i i know you've talked uh, before about the observing uh, director wong jing uh that uh, he was focused on the comedy narrative of the story uh, and as is usual on hong kong film sets he would let an action director and his team focus on that part of the film he wasn't the chief director of uh, of the action choreography but do you remember anything about his like habits and structure and routines since he was an actor and director in this one Uh, i mean did he had any time to direct you guys or he was all too busy writing directing and performing uh, uh, as far as you remember
2: yeah, I think I think writing, performing and all of that, you know, because as people that follow the Hong Kong movie or action movie industry know that they're, they're renowned for having a number of directors, you know. You have a director that will handle the dialogue and the drama, as we call it, and then you'll have action director or directors that will handle the action. And that was pretty much the case with Magic Crystal because – you know he, he someone like wong jing is aware that he's not a martial artist per se it's not his thing so i think it's it's very wise that they will hand it over to the action directors and not only know how to choreograph fights but they know how to shoot them as well they know where to place the camera and that's pretty much what i remember you know wong jing's fun part was again the comedic elements of of a film which You know, I think I mentioned when I was doing um, City Hunter, I think it was, you know, to watch him. He, he would. I'd be in makeup, and he'd have a little lounge, like you'd sit around your swimming pool on, and he'd be giggling away because he'd be writing that day's script. <laughs> you know what the whatever that day was going to involve, and give it to one of the ads, and whatever off you would go and shoot it. And that was pretty much the case with this. He was very, he, he was very emotionally involved. Don't get me wrong, but again, smart enough to know that you leave the action to the amazing choreographers, like. You know, like Tony Leung Si-Hung, who is the uh, fight choreographer on this. I mean, God, if I was directing, I would leave it to him as well. You know, you leave it to the experts and that's the way it worked on most of those Hong Kong movies, including Jackie and Sammo. You know, yes, they're, they're far more involved in action in all aspects, of course, but there's still a number of fight choreographers in, that are involved in putting all that stuff together. It's a a very collaborative process.
0: Very much is. I mean, uh, I I remember watching the the latter film Moon Warriors, which is um, an Andy Lau swordplay film. And Sam Hung directed that. But it's very much on the record that, as you said, there there were a number of units uh, doing... Drama and story and action, and uh, but but Samo getting the full credit in the end was not a controversial thing or or anything. Uh, it's just the way it worked and it was creatively fulfilling for the persons who were uh, focusing on uh, narrative and uh, drama while Samo was uh, overseeing action and and overseeing the narrative in an overall sense. It doesn't diminish the 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 final credit or the end product uh, because. To, to pull out a cliche that like filmmaking is this collaborative process and Hong Kong cinema were very open with uh, what kind of collaborative process it is that you, you use the right people for for the right uh, portions of, uh, of the film.
2: I would often say, Ken, it's like if you watch a, a symphony orchestra and the conductor, the conductor out there... He's the guiding one. He he doesn't know how to play the trombone necessarily, or the violin or the tuba or whatever. That doesn't matter. His job is to just make sure it is all in sync, it's in tune, the timing is there, and that's how I see a Samahong, a Jackie Chan, um, you know, or a Wong Jing. They get people that are great at what they do in different aspects of production and then they orchestrate it, you know, And and yes, they deserve the credit in the end because they're the captain of the ship, so to speak, and that's the way it works, you know
0: very much, uh, and uh, speaking of uh, Tony Leung as uh, Hung, Hong uh, the, the action director on this film it, he's kind of, a, he, he's an acclaimed action director, but he kind of gets lost in the shuffle despite a huge and varied skill set, he's also a filmmaker um, and he, he has worked on so many different film genres and internationally he, uh, he brought uh, that Hong Kong style to the west when they made No Treat, No Surrender Free with uh, Keith Vitale and Lauren Avedon he uh, made super fights. Uh, He was a director. I believe he directed Blood Moon as well. So I've always admired him for that varied skill set. He has has appeared on screen in a couple of old school uh, martial arts films as well. But uh, his uh, styling, whether doing kung fu films or doing modern action films, has always been very fetching to me. Very powerful as well. So him being the action director on this one, and certainly he had a team around him. So what do you remember of uh, him as a collaborative partner or watching him while you stood there in silence, <laughs> awaiting your instructions?
2: No, no. The reason, uh, you know, I, I loved working with him is, first of all, they had the the use of the sigh. I mean, that wasn't... That just came up basically after I arrived because they had no idea whether I could handle any martial art weapons, for instance, I, and I, we had a conversation and, you know, remarked how much I enjoyed the sigh, which is how that became, you know, integral part of that fight with uh, Andy Lau and Cynthia Rothrock, which I was thrilled about, meaning, you know, I said before, it's usually whatever they want to do and they don't care what you do. In this case, you know, the fact that they embraced the idea that they could use that weapon and incorporated it as such into the Karov character I mean, that was great for me because I still look at that afterwards. It's one of the best fight scenes for me that I've ever done. And uh, you've got to thank uh, that to people like Tony because of his uh, choreography and the fact that he was willing to, so as I keep saying, embrace what I was able to do in that case.
0: I I love that fight scene uh, uh, regardless. it's The skill set is uh, off the charts, but I, I love the fact that... Uh, because you you pounce Andy and pounce Cynthia with the tip of it. That makes yeah. the, the, it makes it f- so much more felt that that would hurt so much to get this small tip <laughs> into your rib ribs are over and over. So Andy and Cynthia are uh, really acting well uh, because I, I assume those were a little uh, little faky size.
2: I'll tell you a funny story, too. I remember, Cynthia will kill me for telling you this, but, you know, it, because there's still contact, you know, and by the way, using, you know, the end of the side, not the the pointy end, as it were, you know, it's very much, a, you know, a standard use of that weapon, you know, mm-hmm. but. They wanted me to punch, you know, hit Cynthia in the rib. I think there was a particular insert, and I said to Cynthia, you're you're padded up, aren't you, you know? Well, what she'd done is taken this big pad they had to put around her midsection and ribs and cut it. It looked like a postage stamp because she didn't want to make it look large. Yeah, I won't yeah. say fat large which she's not you know what i mean so sure. she wanted to still look, look sort of nice and petite and everything else and i'm looking at the side of this and i said oh my god i said well maybe i'll hit it and maybe i won't because she remember saying now now you're gonna hit the pad aren't you you're not gonna miss the pad and i said well who knows you know i just thought it was funny i still laugh about that today
0: i mean it looks so furious on screen as well it, it, it's not this undercranked thing that was slow and methodic on set it looks so Uh, furious and fast and you're sweating balls in that scene as well so uh, you can see it—you your sweat just running through your costume so
2: well well, it is incredibly intense you know because especially when you're fighting a couple of people I mean it just doubles the amount of intensity because of the choreography you had to deal with and the fact that Cynthia and Andy were still great opponents you know uh, actors yes but opponents in the fight so you had to be on your game um, but there's always contact, you know, this is the thing with Hong Kong movies that differs from Western movies is usually when you see contact, it's actual, you know, you know, within reason, of course, you know, not not facial so much, even though facially, there's some too. But getting back to that costume, I remember when we shot a lot of that, it was shot in a studio. I think it might have been Taiwan, I forget where we were when we shot that. But They only had one costume and it was, it was, you talk about sweat. It was like a sauna bath. And so every, every chance they got, I would have to take the costume off and they'd get an iron and they would have an (laughs) ironing board, and iron my costume dry. Can you imagine? I mean, that sounds a bit um, icky, doesn't it? But that's what happened because I only had this one costume and it was ridiculous the amount of time it took to keep drying my costume. I'm like, oh my god, what am I doing here?
0: It's a long set piece too, so I can imagine you spent a good two two, three weeks down there.
2: Oh god, yes, always.
0: You know, it's 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 gratifying to hear that your working experiences with uh, uh, with Tony Long. I've spoken to Keith Vitale, who who worked with Tony on those uh, international seasonal production films, No Retreat, No Surrender, Superfights, and he, I always remember his quote um, that Tony was, all, was a director that rubbed everyone the right way, because Keith had had an experience with a prior director that rubbed everyone the wrong way. So... It it's sort of my little mission to lift up as many notes in, into public as I can about uh, Tony because he's been he's been around uh, working internationally and uh, in Hong Kong and uh, has this skill set that translates into powerful action. I'm not going to say akin to Samo because uh, that would be simplified, but certainly power shows up here rather than uh, soft ballet. You know what I mean? So that's
2: uh, and a mixture of, Ken, mm-hmm. as you can see. You even with that the use of the sign and all that, there was a lot of ballet in that. You know, it can't all be power and everything else. Of course, the punctuation is whether you're hitting someone in the head or in the stomach, you've got to have power. But there was a lot of finesse, and that's what I really appreciated. And by the way, of course, as I'd said earlier, me arriving and said, I, I had no idea of who Tony Leung Seung is or his history or anything else. So you're just dealing very freshly one-on-one with somebody like that when you get there and it doesn't take long before like you mentioned keith said that you either have no respect for who you're working with or you have incredible respect and the latter is obvious you know you just know when somebody knows what they're doing and to have that trust go both ways is integral to coming you know to bringing a good fight scene together And that's what we had on that that set.
0: And those fight scenes and action in general is obviously premium filmmaking. That that's something that won't grow old. Something uh, it's going to be timeless. Something that does date the movie and where you kind of chuckle at the movie is some of the design work, if you will. So I was wondering, because in that cave set, obviously they uh, dumped the. Uh, The flying saucer and the alien puppet in there so i was wondering did you and cynthia get to chuckle to yourself sort of catching glimpses of what film you were making because you're fighting in front of that piece with the creepy et puppet and the flying saucer was it kind of like i thought we were doing an action film but there's a flying saucer here what the heck is going on? Or What do you remember about uh,
2: that? Amen to all of that. I mean, you know, again, even during shooting, we're not, still not quite sure what the story really is, you know, that this extraterrestrial being that sort of communicates, you know, via...
0: Wave something,
2: yeah. (laughs) Yeah, But when we first saw, we still used to talk about laugh. Then we still laugh to this day. When we first saw this paper mache kind of alien being propped there, and I did think, I said, "Oh my god, there seems to be so much into this production. Surely, 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 they could have come up with a better representation of that alien." You
0: you can probably breathe on that thing, and it would fall (laughs) apart.
2: That's the funny part about being involved. In those kind of comedic action movies, you you just have to throw common sense almost, you know, out the window and you just got to go along for the ride because it is about a fun ride. You know, it is very family oriented. You know, the, this is why... I remember Jackie saying to me way back, he said, you'll never see gratuitous gore or violence or sex or bad language because he knew his audience was the 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 kids. You know, the parents would take the kids and if the kids liked it, they wouldn't go just once, they'd go two, three, four, five times. So something like Magic Crystal, it's it's just a laugh, you know, with incredible action a la Watching, say, Buster Keaton in the old silent movies or Laurel and Hardy or the Three Stooges, they had action as well, you know, but you could turn that sound off and everything else and then just enjoy the physicality of what they did. Ridiculous as it was, it was still amazing when you look at it and dissect it. So, again, with Magic Crystal, you know, yes, it's kind of ridiculous in some ways with this alien. It just didn't matter because that was the genre of movie that people expected from someone like Wong Jing or even City Hunter with Jackie Chan. It was, it was more comedic. It was geared toward a, long, uh, a younger audience, not a very serious drama sort of um, type of audience.
0: Yeah, Tonally Wild is uh, either for you or not for you, but uh, tonally, tonally Wild is not something every Hong Kong filmmaker did well at that point. The movie could stop dead in its tracks in between the action, but Ma- Magic Crystal certainly doesn't because it is it, it is a laugh and it is daft and uh, it, it uh, plays to... A wide audience that way but uh, it's certainly not boring in between that stuff and that's what, what you have Wong Jing for because he's a very commercially driven filmmaker he knows his audience, he knows his stuff and uh, and uh, it, th- there is a balance uh, here the, we we mentioned it in the show obviously in our review later me and my co-host but I'm, I'm not particularly sure about this very fact so do correct me if I'm wrong the movie obviously went uh, to Greece to do location shooting and there are a select few shots in front of uh, architecture that uh, would be in Greece, where you appear in. But um, it seems like so few shots that it seems un- that, that it seems like either implausible or, in- or you know, as a matter of fact, very plausible that they flew you out to Greece. So what did they do, as a matter of fact, uh, with you? Did, did, they, uh, did they pay for your uh, little European holiday?
2: Yes, 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 and yes. And the great part about that is, is when uh, when we were told we were going to Hong Kong, this is post which uh, you probably want to ask me about injuries. I had been hit in the head with a sword that Cynthia was wielding, you know, and a lot of a lot of that happens because you're shooting sometimes 16 hours straight. You think you're ducking. She thinks she's hitting in the right place, but I got smacked in the eye. They took me to the hospital and I had eight stitches put in my eye, no anesthetic because I didn't want my eye to swell up, you know, so we can continue shooting. So as a result of that, when it came to going to Hong Kong, I remember saying uh, to um, Greece, I'm saying basically, you know, look, we we need to go to Greece. You know, the reason we get injuries is because of ridiculously long hours on the shot in, uh, on the sh- uh, set, as it were. And I said, I tell you what, I'm happy to go. But. I need you to fly my wife over with me. I was in a couple of days shooting Greece, but they ended up paying for my wife and obviously my airfare. We stayed there, I think, three weeks. We ended up hiring a, a scooter and just doing the most amazing sightseeing trip all around Athens, you know, as a result of of going and doing a couple of days shooting in Greece, and they were happy enough to accommodate that. So, I'm still we're still incredibly thankful for that opportunity to go and sightsee around Athens at the expense of Wongjing Jing and Magic Crystal.
0: Yeah, there, in the end, there are like so few shots of uh, exteriors of you in Greece. I was wondering, like, I know that probably is real, but. No, in Hong Kong movies, maybe they had a trick up their sleeve to make it look like he was in Greece. But uh, but yeah, no, it was
2: there. definitely there, definitely there. I got great, great memories. Tried all the different Greek food and everything else. It was a wonderful little little break for us.
0: And not a terribly common either for Hong Kong films to to go that far, especially not something this um, that that could have easily been located in. Hong Kong and Taiwan in terms of the story and that would have been fine. It's, uh, but the movie doesn't scream for being global or anything but it's neat that uh, the production had the facilities and uh, the finances to um, to to go this far because I, I always love when Hong Kong movies do go on the road whether it's uh, America or Europe or, or what have you. It adds a little bit of extra uh, special entertaining tint uh, for me as a viewer really.
2: You've got to realize, too, with that style of movie back then, you know, and again, I say Jackie, Sam, all of them were aware of that. The audience really weren't that interested, necessary, in the drama or the location and everything. And, I mean, the main attraction was the action. It was the action fight scenes that were there, which, as you point out, could be done almost anywhere and would still be just as enjoyable had you not been in Taiwan or Greece or anywhere else. So you're right. It's it's sort of interesting they choose to do that because it wasn't necessary for the success of one of those sort of comedic action genre films.
0: You you mentioned injuries and I suppose we should round this off by checking a few things if they're even correct. Uh, you uh, you mentioned that you indeed uh, indeed cut uh, uh, your eyebrow and had to, to have stitches. Uh, but do you remember if uh, it's uh, true that uh, Cynthia? Uh, injured herself uh, it says on wikipedia she injured her right uh, acl and uh, uh, accidentally also stabbed her opponent with her spear in one of the scenes i believe in greece uh, do you remember to- talking about that or even uh, seeing this happen
2: i don't unfortunately can i mean it doesn't surprise me i mean to get an injury or two in one of those fights, and if you didn't, then I would be surprised, you know, it was just the nature of the beast, so.
0: It even says that she re-injured her knee, so that, that was uh, an ailment that uh, she carried with her from earlier in the decade, having done a few Hong Kong films at that point.
2: Yeah, we've all we've all got injuries from those movies. And again, as I said, due to the, you know, there's it's very intense. There's a lot of contact and everything else. And and the intensity of the fight means yes, you're susceptible to getting injured. I think anyone would it. And and again, when you go there, it's almost like that's just part of the gig. You know, if you go in thinking, oh, I hope I don't get hit too hard or I don't have to do anything that might injure me, then don't go. You know what I mean. You're just not going to fit in that environment. So, and Cynthia was a trooper. She was she was tough as well. You know, um, again, hence the longevity she had in those Hong Kong movies. Again, they wouldn't use you if you're a bit of a baby and kind of carried on just because you got an injury or two. That was again just the nature and the expectation they had on you to be involved.
0: Yeah, and, uh, you you guys were tough cookies. I've I've talked to Sophia Crawford. Um, once and she injured her foot during a very small movie called Story of the Gun. She simply wrapped that up, went to the set the next day, she over-directed that, well, I can't do it. I mean, I'm here. I'm not, backing out. I'm not backing off, but I can't do it. We need to solve this. I can't do the fight scene. So they just, as you talked about, improvised something on the spot and had her character uh, receive a gunshot wound to her leg. So, so that was that, so she could, she'll, she could do some.
2: Yeah, I mean, we, you know, when I had my car, and, and the tip of the sword just missed my eye. It was so, I've still got the scar today, of oh course, boy. but, you know, the fact that it took me to the hospital, the reason they didn't want anesthetic is because, again, they wanted to stitch it up. I think I had eight stitches in my eye. I was literally back on set within hours filming again with my head turned away from camera a little bit. That was just... Was that a
0: demand on you, or you were gung-ho to like I'm not I'm not missing time I'm not slowing down the production I want in
2: no it's both that was an expectation of course if I couldn't do it then wouldn't be done but I was happy you know I again I realize when when you do those sort of movies you know as I'd say to people it's not table tennis you know if you think you're not going to get pounded around again don't put your hand up in the first place and go the fact that I'd already worked with Jackie and Samo. Goodness gracious, if that didn't prepare you to for what to expect in a Hong Kong movie fight set, then again, woe is me, you know, if for putting my hand up and going. I, I know to expect that. And I was always in great shape. I didn't mind contact. I did a lot of full contact fighting. So it wasn't really an issue for me, you know, I was happy. I mean, of course, you don't want to get hit in the head with a sword, but shit happens, you know. And uh, that was just just one of the things that went along with, with that style of shooting.
0: When looking back on all those uh, decades of uh, making choreography like this, Hong Kong has a pretty you know the numbers aren't staggering in terms of uh, fatal injuries or permanent injuries that uh, destroyed careers or, en- careers or anything like that. Considering what Jackie and Zamo and uh, stunt persons all around the industry put themselves through, it's it's amazing that um, the the safety record, as safe as it might not have felt at times it's uh, as good as it is, you know.
2: People might feel sorry for us. Imagine being one of the stunties, you know, what's expected in them is just, I just shake my head, you know, because if you're part of a stunt team, a elite stunt team, whether it's uh, Samo or Jackie or Wingy, if you're part of that team, basically whatever you ask to do, you're expected to say yes. And if you were hesitant or said no, that would probably be the end of your involvement in the stunt team. That's just what was expected. You you were paid to take the bumps, as many bumps as it took, and that was part of the gig. If you imagine the analogy I sometimes use is if you're a guitarist and you got offered a gig for no pay to play for the Rolling Stones, of course you would do it because of the credit and how it would affect your future career. So that's what's on the line for these studies, working with the top Hong Kong filmmakers at the time. You had to say yes. You had to go a hundred percent, or that would be the end of it. Because there's another thousand in line, putting their hands up, wanting to be involved in that industry, and that's just the way it worked.
0: Yeah, very much. Uh, um, I'm, I'm not going to keep it for too too much longer, but I remember specifically uh, speaking of um, Samos stunt team. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you remember. I have a meeting or uh, knowing of uh, the uh, the stunt person and actor uh, Chin Lok. Uh, he he was part of Sammo's stunt team, and uh, in two movies in a row, or at least uh, in 1985 and 1987, he suffered some grave injuries. There's an outtake from *Heart of the Dragon*, the film that's uh, the drama that Sammo did with uh, Jackie, where Chin Lok I believe, anyway, he performs a stunt where he jumps out of a restaurant window, and he's supposed to land on a car, I believe, but he goes heel first into the pavement and seemingly breaks both his legs. Right there in the Altex, and do you think they had an ambulance to take him away from set? No, they loaded him into a van. All the guys carried him off. There's no, it, it just uh, he was all right.
2: I was there when that happened. No way. We, yes, now we were shooting a movie, and Samuel wanted me to, because often they were shooting two movies at once. They took me to a set, and there's the setup. Yes, the guy's got to come flying out of the top. Second floor window land on the canopy of the first floor bounce off the canopy and land on the bonnet of or roof of a car That's driving in first of all. I thought how do you even time that? So there's obviously no pads on the road And I didn't see that actual injury but we went upstairs and I go upstairs and I see this stunt man on his back with with both legs all bandaged and strapped up Because exactly what you said, he'd come out the window, apparently missed the canopy, missed the car. Luckily, when I say luckily, I mean, you know what I'm saying, rather than on his head, he landed on his feet, but broke both his legs. So they patted another Stunty up, you know, we go back outside. And... You know, we we're watching this, whoever it was, comes flying at the top floor, lands in the canopy, manages to land on the roof of the car and goes splat on the road. And I looked at Samo. and I sort of looked at him and I said, oh, oh, great. You got it right. And there's a bit of silence. Samo starts yelling at everybody. I, and I basically said, what happened? And he said, I told him, do it again. I want him to bas- bounce faster off that canopy. Wow. I remember saying, I said, oh, I said, you guys are fucking nuts. I said, that is crazy. You know, the
0: horrible thing is as well, that outtake is shown in slow motion.
2: I haven't even seen that outtake, but it was, again, I didn't see that actual any, but I saw the results of it and him being carted away in the band. And then, as I said, a following take, you know, and uh, that's when I, I shook my head. I said, oh, my God, you know,
0: I'm not said, doing
2: that. Yeah. <laughs> No, and thankfully they would never expect one of our squalos to do dangerous stunts like that. Yeah, well, even Millionaire's Express, I remember Samo had the shin kick uh, guy in the head in one of the fights. Three of them, not just groggy, but basically knocked out cold because Samo wouldn't pull the kick wham across the neck they'd grab the guy by the ankles pull him out and another guy would come in trembling be ready for the next shot but again that's that's the way it was and there that's the expectation which was which was quite and and they were not
0: tyrants either i mean obviously Samo was not he he wasn't this sadist uh, but he knew what he wanted and what would what his preferred action cinema was going to be like yeah you know
2: they they basically if if you saw somebody getting hit in the face at least one of them or in the body it wasn't what you saw was actually happening you know that's again what was expected of the stunt team in back in those days you know as you know in western movie it's all about camera angles and trickery we don't want to smack the crap out of each other you don't have to you use the illusion of film but back then wouldn't matter where they put the camera they want to see that foot or that hand actually hit the target and hit it hard and that was just what you did like i got sidekicked in twinkle twinkle probably 20 times up against the wall and sammo would start from the other end of a football field it felt to me and run at me <laughs> and, and that was actual you did there was no faking that you know uh so again I got hit with bare-fisted uppercut under the chin in that one multiple times. I found a little bit of cotton wool to put in my teeth, so I didn't chip my teeth. And that, that was a, a wake-up call. Oh, okay, that's the way it works here. That's okay. We can do this.
0: <laughs> Mad Max is a cakewalk, considering you did Hong Kong cinema. No, I'm just kidding. Exactly.
2: Exactly. Oh, you're right. You're right. Well,
0: um, Excellent re- uh, talking to you, Richard, uh, going down Magic Crystal memory lane. As I said, thank you very much for taking the time. And uh, this is a, a unique perspective uh, for us because uh, a movie like Magic Crystal may be very popular, but it's not very documented in, in terms of uh, its, uh, its uh, behind-the-scenes uh, uh, mechanics and uh, how it came about. Uh, it's very loved. It, it's a cult film, and uh, it's uh, it, it's it's uh, it's certainly out there and uh, appreciated. But uh, amidst the silliness, sometimes perhaps people forget that it's a pretty hardcore action film in there as well. But. Um, and and you go to space at the end you, you you jump on the 80 puppet and you go to space I love star trek 1 <laughs> when the guy merges with the with the v thing.
2: <laughs> yeah no, no and I'm glad it's it's become a cult because again it's for me personally <laughs> I know Cynthia's done amazing other action films and Andy Wood but for me personally it's some of the best fight stuff I'm incredibly happy with the way that turned out and thrilled to have been a part of it and loved Wong Jing and working with him, as you know, City Hunter as well. So it was good to be involved. And, and Karov, as you, I, I always laugh when he knows 10. My whole background was karate, you know, and kickboxing and stuff. So to sort of replicate some of these hand moves that they wanted me to do, that was Cynthia and I had a lot of fun. She would laugh a lot at me trying to do some of that stuff. Yeah, the, you do uh,
0: Eagle's Claw and Mantis yeah, style. Right. And yeah, I i
2: like, what the fuck is Eagle's Claw, you know? But anyway, it was it it was it was great. It was great to be a part of it. it, aside from having the only the one costume that they had to dry every five minutes. At least you can look back and have a good laugh, you know, that you survived it, got through it, and – uh Part of the journey.
0: And I suppose that's an appropriate uh, sign-off. So again, thank you, Richard, for uh, for taking the time to uh, to talk to me about this uh, about this film.
2: You're very welcome, Kenneth. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it, my friend.
0: And welcome back, hope you enjoyed that chat with uh, Richard Norton and uh, we're going to conclude this episode with uh, our discussion of the film, our views and our review notes. So uh, Paul hasn't spoken for a while obviously so I'm going to leave the short opinion of Magic Crystal uh, to him
1: first of all for him to
0: deliver. So uh, uh, had you seen the film before in uh, any shape or form?
1: Uh, I had not seen it all the way completely through. I'd seen bits of it. But, I mean, who wants to hear me after hearing from Richard Norton? <laughs> well, I, well, I do. It's like, how do I follow up with that? Uh, um, but, yeah, this was my first kind of sit-down and uh, complete watch-through. Had you bailed on it before? or you, you... I, I had. Um, <laughs> because, and here's the thing. I remember seeing this on the shelves, you know, the the in the DVD stores. And it's got some of the worst cover art ever created for a dvd so i always kind of like i saw it there and i was like mm, andy Lau. and uh, no here's this other nice new shiny thing i'm gonna get instead um so i'd put it off for a, a long long time so it's nice to actually uh kind of sit down and and go through this from beginning to end you know as much as i love hong kong cinema and even you know i mean we've talked about some rough hong kong cinema stuff before you know like i'm thinking like you know a tale from the east and 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 stuff like that where it's a genre that I love, and it's stuff that I love, but there's still a lot to really discuss about the film in terms of quality and presentation. And I think that's the case here as well. I mean, um, there's a lot of stuff here to really enjoy, but the presentation of it um, as a complete package is kind of rough for me. I mean, this is very, very a very Wong Jing film and a very early Wong Jing film. I mean, within the first six minutes... You have a, a sequence of shots of just random girls erupting out of a pool, and and it's not even showing their face; it's just showing you know their 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 bikini uh, shots. Um, so you know, yeah, it's it's Wong Jing right from the get go. And we were talking before Mr. Norton's interview about the expectations on this film, and and at this point, had Wong Jing really kind of found his footing as a director, at least the Wang Jing we would come to know later with big successes with people like Chow fat and Stephen Chow and others. You know, here I think you, again, you get a variety of elements of different things. You've got the lecherous side of Wang Jing cinema. Mm-hmm. You've got the copycat side of Wang Jing cinema. Mm-hmm. And you've got uh, the action elements of Wang Jing cinema. And they're kind of mashed into this thing that's just at times, so strange, but still so fascinating um, to watch.
0: Let me put a pin in it for now and let you expand on that in a little bit. Uh, I don't disagree, but I did have a few more laughs than I expected. But um, in reality, it's dumb as shit. <laughs> because Wong Jing wants it to be. I mean, he's not thinking, uh, he's not uh, like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing art here. And uh, this is a revolutionary comedy. No, it's, it's dumb as shit. Uh, he also wants it to be this movie, E.T., he wants it to be Raiders of the Lost Ark, and he wants it to be close encounters of the third kind a little bit.
1: Yeah, and he throws in a little pol- poltergeist as well a little with, bit yeah uh, fa- face ripping yeah.
0: And uh, but but he's wise to let the action director, which is uh, which me and uh, Richard talked about, uh Tony Lung, uh, Tony Lung, uh, Siu uh, He's wise to let him uh, head the show when it's supposed to be about that because uh, truth be told, that, that is the actual praiseworthy element. But the comedy is, I hate to say it, pretty funny at points and it mostly involves Nat Chan. I had a good laugh at some of the dumb stuff that uh, him and uh, Wong Jing does uh, combined. And maybe I'm desensitized to it because neither neither gentleman is like this treasure trove of uh, comedic timing and uh, comedic skill set, you know. It's, it's Wong Jing and Natsha, their bodies as well. Um, so it's a packed, arguably overly packed time. But And it's daft, but uh, I find myself being entertained by it. So it, uh, it, um, it kind of works for me. But, but, but that begs the question, is the, is the Wong Jing and Tony Leung film matching up well or did, did you have a problem sort of extracting the action as good as it is because it's placed next to all this daft stuff as well like, like uh does the action pale for some reason because it's in such a packed film or uh, or that or, or those parts were good as a matter of fact
1: no in fact those parts were you know exceptional i mean you have uh, exceptional performers here you have cynthia rothrock of course you have um, uh, richard norton and i mean one of the great things about this film is that you get this piece of fight choreography towards the end between uh, Cynthia and and Richard, which is great because you don't often get to see two Western actors using this kind of fight choreography against each other, right, In, in extended shots. So you get to see... You know Cynthia and, and Richard changing changing up different kung fu styles as they as they face off against each other. This is something you'd see all the time, you know, in in lots of Shaw films in the '70s and kung fu films in the '80s and and into the '90s. But and sometimes you might have one Western actor, usually as the heavy, um, you know, playing off. But I I can't think of any films that come to mind where you have a, this extensive fight scene between two western actors.
0: They, they, they had earned their stripes by this point. Uh, you know, Yes Madam, Twinkle Twinkle Lucky Stars. I think uh, Persons, uh, technical crew, obviously, action directors were pretty damn uh, satisfied with what they saw and what th- that they responded to the timing required of them. As small as perhaps the Twinkle Twinkle Lucky Stars performance is versus Cynthia's kind of co-starring turn in Yes Madam. But uh, I have a feeling that they they simply were impressed by them from the get-go. It didn't take like going and gave you another chance and maybe a third chance and then will take you seriously. So it really is, a nice, to see, it is nice to see that a lot of confidence is placed uh, on them. And, and, and as I spoke to Richard, you obviously haven't heard this yet, but uh, he wasn't cocky about it or anything. He was just following directions. But they were he was responding. And the side weapons that he uses, perhaps we'll touch on this a little bit later, those were in his wheelhouse. So that's why that looks so good on him anyway. You know. So they, they trusted his actual skill sets that he that he came um, came into the film with, you know.
1: And to bring it back to the the discussion of comedy, for me actually one of the funniest moments of the film wasn't with Nat Chan, who was very much doing his Nat Chan sort of Lolanto shtick. Um, which I can mention a bit more in a moment but Richard has a thing in the the last act of the film where he's you know he 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 is the big bad he ends up having to you know because he's so skilled he ends up fighting Cynthia and Andy Lau and and sometimes Max Malk and sort of on again off again as they're all trying to surpass him and they're in this chamber where there's this sci-fi stuff going on and there's a button on the wall that becomes like ma- it makes magnetized everything gets sucked everything that's metal gets sucked to the wall so all the weapons and guns get sucked to the wall and then richard pulls out these two sides and they're like looking around saying oh those are those are metal how come they get sucked to the wall and he's like oh and he stops in the middle of this fight and he's like let me tell you about the alloy of these from my country and <laughs> he has this speech and it's just so matter of the fact and the way he delivers it is so great i think that there's that he has untapped comedic potential that is highlighted in that one scene that just made me laugh out loud.
0: He's good, he's good fun and charming. Remember him in City Hunter? Yes, he was the big bad, but he was um, he was the friendly big bad kind of like he blew people away, of course. But his uh, he, confidence as an actor kind of shows up uh, here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and as you know, as with City Hunter, another Wang Jing joint. Right um i do I do think that uh, what you get here is Wang Jing, as we've said, borrowing a lot of intellectual property oh, ideas. You're so from-
0: you're so kind like what's the alternate <laughs> word to wholesale ripping shit off? yeah, borrow, borrow borrow pay no marsh no, you're not you know you're 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 cashing in on uh, things that were still hot at the time. It's not like e t came out uh, the week before.
1: Which is why I think for me on this film, some of the pacing gets off because you've got Wang Jing playing out these ideas. I I think um, Coza was dead on because I had had it in my notes that this really feels like it should be a, a Wisely film without having to buy the Wisely IP. And then you just throwing in all these ideas from different Spielberg movies and mixing it in with the comedy of Nat Chan's sort of Lolanto films. So, I mean... For those who are unfamiliar, Nat Chan had this period where he was being pushed as a sort of a romantic comedy lead. That's funny, but it's true. <laughs> um, with these series of films, uh, it started with I Love Lolanto, and I think there's a couple other where he carries on as the Lolanto character. By this point, he'd kind of been pushed over into the sort of lecher, more lecherous comedic foil as he is here, but he's still kind of carrying on that sort of Lolanto, Lothario personality a little bit as he sort of runs up against uh, Andy Lau and they they bring Charlotte Chung, uh, Chung Man, her first film, uh, debut film here into the mix. So you've got sort of that aspect of it mixed in with the sci-fi Spielberg borrowings, mixed in with the very excellent uh, action pieces by um, Tony Lang Suhong.
0: Yeah, and as much as I agree with you, because it's so packed, like uh, pacing is off and you forget that Nat Chan was even in this movie when he's exited... The film, and therefore, you kind of realize that he's, he's just there for the jokes, uh, uh, unrelated jokes, and he rarely interacts with, uh, well, he interacts to a, to a degree with the main plot, but still it feels like uh, tacked on. But and as much as it shouldn't work, because it's pretty hardcore with uh, martial arts, as we talked of, with silly stuff, family friendly stuff, some not so family friendly stuff, because people die here and things like that, it's still kind of fun entertainment uh, seeing Hong Kong cinema wheels turning. Even if it's misguided to pack as much as they do into the film, you know, and, and admittedly it's kind of cringe, but it also works because Wong Jing is—he's not an ace humorist or anything, nor does he do family film warmth well. But his insistence, your your sort of protective walls, your your protective armor, kind of breaks down. Not because he shoots like excellent slow mo uh, scenes of. Uh, women coming out of the pool or anything it's not like, oh my god that's a so hot but it's it, you just so, sort of do the captain picard meme and just mm. <laughs> okay okay fine fine wong jing you do you and uh, then he sits at the pool and just just splashes water on the girls because he can and things like that but yeah okay fine because the movie isn't delaying its other good elements i guess it's fine because we we get martial arts pretty pretty early on we of course get uh we get the hunky andy lao in a slow-mo workout montage early on as well as well so he's taking it to the limit in that little little scene so i think if wang jing had delayed action for a good 30 40 minutes 50 like, I'd done his half and then let Tony do his half. I think Magic Crystal would have come off as way, way more annoying. Because you're stuck with these guys. But I think because he switches, uh, switches things uh, around, it uh, gets a little bit more tolerable. He doesn't get stuck in the stuff. But but it never really does. The, like the friendship between the alien and uh, and little Pimpin it's it not it's not warm stuff right paul it's it's certainly not this uh, contender for oh, it is hong kong's warm point poignant answer
1: to et or anything right yeah except it's like et but if et was a rock that wasn't cute <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's basically what it is it grows these little feet which is kind of disturbing <laughs> it sticks a little finger out that's that's definitely more of uh, you know of I uh, I don't know uh, an allusion to something else than a finger. It just it's so weird at times that I mean it makes it interesting um, to be sure. But then it's just like are they really trying to like get away with this because it's cheap? Or I mean,
0: well, well, well we get to design choices later where you realize that yeah, it, it is cheap. They <laughs> are not able to do the stuff, but uh, we can actually spoil that towards uh, towards the end of the discussion. But uh, go, going back to Andy. An action which we do get early, the stuff he engages in with the stunt persons uh, is 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 complex. It's not slow and balletic and uh, you know undercranked. It requires timing to work with the performance around him that surrounds him so and yes andy is doubled acrobatically at points which is done really well because he's young at the point so uh, at that time so i think it was easy to match youth and body type very easily but andy's performing kicks here he's tossing stunt man. he's doing spin kicks and it's really impressive to see him um, engage in as much as he does without it being a doubling showcase every three seconds you know what i mean like he's um he's in i don't know if he went through there's two two shots as uh, his character goes through a window one shot where someone goes through a window and then like the second half of the shot but uh, it's a it's a cut between those shots where it seems like andy has gone through a little bit of a window, a little bit of a like, half partially broken window and then enters the frame with uh, you know, the the scene with the safe and Y and all of that. But still, there's no denying that Andy is um, part of this greatly. And the doubling is very selective and very well done, as a matter of fact. Even Richard's doubling, as strange as it sounds, is really well done. They, so they, they work on this uh, immersive... Factor that uh, Andy Lau as a martial arts hero is going to be believable here, and it is bel- admirably so, which uh, always blows me away. And I think that's the staying power of Magic Crystal you know, for for all its you know cheap stuff and dopey stuff. Here you have a man in his prime, one of his primes, you know, <laughs> because he uh, and had staying power, and he's performing like this, and it, it's it's marvelous to see and it's not just one select sequence he does well throughout the film and uh, i've uh, i've stayed impressed ever since i first saw magic crystal in terms of this
1: yeah and i think too if you look to um <clears throat> some of the other stunt work that's uh, the the non fighting stunt work there's a scene where he is uh, sort of rappelling down this multi story garage and trying to get away from uh, richard's character and his thugs And Charlotte Chung, who, again, her first film, so obviously she's going to do whatever the director tells her to do, is basically hanging off of him, you know, around his neck as he rappels down. Now, it's very clear in a couple of the shots that, you know, she is rigged up and Andy is rigged up, but there's still several stories up and there are shots from both the side and from the top looking down of the two of them basically hanging off the side of this building and it's them. It is very clearly them, you know. So yeah, it's uh you know, I, I'm I'm sure that uh by the time Ms. Chung was partnering with Stephen Chow that she'd probably written in some clauses like, no more hanging off the sides of buildings like this. You know, I think it's it's it is very indicative of, you know, Andy's commitment and 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 their commitment to, you know, doing these scenes when they feel they can and they can do so in a somewhat safe manner. I was equally impressed by uh, an actress named Wong Mei Mei, who's Mm -hmm. plays Andy's sister in this. And she's not somebody who has, you know, she's usually in bit parts. She's been in Shaw stuff over the years. Um, She's been in, um, this was one of her, I think one of her final films, if not next to last film. But, um, you know, she's been in um, things like, she was in Human Lanterns in a small role, which you guys uh, recently Did a commentary for, I think, last year. So uh, Monkey Kung Fu, um, Ambitious Kung Fu Girl, just lots of little bit parts. And obviously the real deal as well. Oh, absolutely. She comes in and she is just doing some some phenomenal stuff. So you know that she has um, a very clear background. I'm not sure if she comes from a, a Cantonese opera stage background, but she moves like she's definitely got a very strong background in this. And they use her in in the action sequences very very well and i really i i was i i was always happy to see her doing um action scenes alongside of of cynthia and andy and and the stuff they were doing together it was was really really great
0: the the design of the action is actually it leans towards a little bit towards um traditional meaning that it's a there's a fair amount of usage and i guess uh, within the physical performance as well uh, but but there the, there is a fair amount of usage of traditional Chinese weapons, which sounds like it's it's gonna clash with a modern setting, but it doesn't when it's this good. You know what I mean? And that includes her scenes as well versus uh, uh, versus Richard, and obviously you get uh, Cynthia using that uh, spear with the red tassel versus uh, the henchman with the what are those uh, things called? Uh, Tom Tom Tompa or Tonfa? Uh, those uh, truncheons of sorts. So it, the, the the movie has this uh, traditional Chinese martial arts tint in this modern setting, which I don't know if they thought that was risky or not, but it, it just looks good. It just looks really cool that this
1: is what the Interpol agents do.
0: <laughs> they bust out these weapons. Uh, and I found that delightful as well.
1: Again, pointing out some of the comedy that is in this film... Not the Nat Chan comedy, but more on... Oh, uh, I'm going to point that out, because
0: I love (laughs)
1: that. More on the action side. Um, There's a stuntman here, uh, Wong Wong Kalang, who has um, just a really long list of uh, stuff that he's been in over the years. But uh, he has a very sort of unique look, and he has a a scene where he's supposed to have a sort of SmackDown fight with um, Cynthia's character, and you see him, you know, it's one of those things where he's, like, stretching his leg up and holding his leg up, and you know he's gonna be uh you know a tough fight it's kind of kind of highlighting that fact
0: it's kind of what ken lowe does in drunken master 2 Those uh, incredible uh stretches showcasing that he's a kicker of sorts and he's flexible and this is what that guy does too if you look at it from a visual point of view
1: yeah so it's it's exactly that scene but they play it for the comedy side of it um which i think was great and it's it's i think it's also a, a Commentary on what many martial artists would say: nobody would ever do that because it's not very efficient if you're fighting for real. So, you know, there there's comedy built in, as, as I said, like with Richard Norton's um, explanation and, and a scene like that. That I also really appreciated in this film. I mean, that Chan comedy is great, uh, but I, I really appreciate it when they find the humor in the action as well.
0: When talking of uh, such a. Quick dispatch, as Cynthia does of uh, this person. It reminded me of uh, the Samo scene in I want to say My Lucky Stars, where he faces off with versus uh, Michiko Nishiwaki, and she is flexing and her muscles on is on display. That's gotta be a big, big fight. And after all is said and done, she goes down after one hit. It sounds like yeah, Samo is beating women again, but. You know, it's it's it defies expectations. You know, it's not Samo versus her for a couple of minutes or anything. So um, that's uh, it. Reminded me a little bit, uh, a little bit of that as well. And, and Tony's action—it's not like akin to like Samo's power, but he's leaning on that. That this is gonna feel powerful and uh, incredibly inc- uh, intricate as well. Plus, playing with the notion of uh, Chinese traditional weapons uh, as well as Cynthia uh, fights in Greece. You then you have uh, Max Mock, of course, has a little bit of a fighting showcase. All too short versus uh, fight versus Eddie Mayer in the Greece section because uh, Eddie Mayer is uh, one of my favorite uh, fight performers out of uh, out of this uh, era. Very very powerful, very intimidating uh, performer. So so yeah, it has established all of this that it's uh, it's for a martial arts crowd. It's a little bit for adults as people get shot. and it's uh, for kids to a degree as well, even though that wasn't uh, warmth personified on screen or anything. So, Wong Jing is uh, cramming this film with stuff. He's a ham for better or worse. You know, I, I, as an actor, I mean, he's uh, there's not a bit of his that I love that in terms of what Wong Jing does here. I mean, both. Almost. But I just thought it was so damn hammy. You know, it was annoying. The scene where he runs into a, in a, a, an hotel room. And then he needs to go to the bathroom. And he sees the door is closed. And he's like, no, the door is closed. You know, overacting his heart out. Then he gets into the toilet. And then he thinks like, oh, there's a European toilet here as well. Meaning that I think he shits in, into the bidet. But that's just a... The sign of Wong Jing writing stuff on the go. Which Richard has att- uh, has attested to that. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you know Those jokes weren't uh, tested for months and months and months or anything. And workshopped. I'm sure Wong Jing came up with uh, his literal toilet humor on the go. But I didn't laugh at really a second of it. Uh, out of those two dopey performers, it's really not Chan that I think uh, got to me. Because there are some surprising... Uh, Turns in some of the comedic uh, comedic uh, uh, set pieces. We won't spoil all of them, but I wanted to uh, s- circle back to to Richard. I mean, obviously, they came up with this afterwards that Karov is this Chinese dialect expert, right? Because. Uh, you know, I, I I literally asked him that. Like, no, that was not something I knew of. So they obviously play with Richard Richard's character in the dubbing. But I think uh, I, I like his calm versus his danger. In, in, in that scene with Philip Kofé as he's injured, he's kind of courteous to him. But uh, then, you know, he's, he punches his ribs and what have you. And that's, you know, that's instant kickoff into punching his ribs and uh, dishing out the damage is... A nice mixture of uh, you know demeanor and danger, calm demeanor and danger, rather than just asking Richard to uh, be the maniacally laughing villain. And I think that looks very good on him, um, on him as well, because when he when his fights kick off in a more extensive manner later in the film, you realize that he you know is pretty he is pretty dangerous. So that mixture uh, worked for me very well. Arguably, if they forget about. Uh, the movie is doing not Ch- uh, what the movie is supposed to do. Is during Nat Chan's uh, extended, well, supporting role. Really, the various ways he gets into trouble, because it is really easy to forget what is going on when Nat Chan is peeping, and is being punished by the alien in various ways. As 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 bad as it fits into the structure, I gotta say it. His insistence as a performer, it got to me, Paul. It really did, without being terribly clever, of course. But there are some side guys that you perhaps don't expect out of a character like this. You expect him to be lecherous and be beaten up and running into a wall and fall off a uh, fall off a building and uh, be all messed up towards the end. But uh, the the alien has uh, its powers, so they uh, they mess with him, um, mess with him that way. Uh, but. Uh, You know, in Nat in this film, is it genuinely funny or is it so, so daft that it, you kind of, you're weakened by it after a while because his shtick is what it is? So, what do you think of Nat in in that regard?
1: I always liked his early films and I I like his style of comedy, even though after a while it does get a little bit um, redundant. I think part of the problem with him here is that his character and Wong Jing's character are kind of writing the same comedic line. Mm -hmm. And I mean, ideally, you could have one playing the other. Yes. Um, You could combine the roles. I mean, um, obviously, Nat Chan is going to bring a different sensibility to humor than, than Wong Jing is. Wong Jing is mostly a director, though he does insert himself into roles like this that are a little bit demeaning to himself. Um, over, you know, he does this frequently over the years. Ideally, you could very much easily see Wong Jing's character here going through what Nat Chan does or vice versa, you know, having Nat Chan be the friend, but also sort of the the comedic foil to Pin Pin and, and, and going through that. So the fact that they kind of bring him in and, and Charlotte Chung in, um, for this little bit of a love triangle romantic comedy section in the second act only to have them pretty much vanish and, and not be in the third act at all that, that for me is part of my problem with the sort of the pacing of, of the whole thing because it feels it, it makes you question like the necessity of of that altogether as anything other than just filler now it's pretty fun filler to be sure, uh, especially the sequence where the alien gets involved. Um, but at the same time, by the end, I'm like just thinking to myself, wait, what happened to those guys? I mean, we kind of we kind of yeah, we kind of remember he he goes, but she just, you know, the, the, the final scene is, uh, I think, her visiting Andy at the prison. And then it's like, you never see her again. And it's like, OK, you know, uh, obviously there's some physical comedy involved and he's always great at that. Um, And that will work for people who enjoy that. But it still is a bit of a head scratcher as to, you know, was he brought in at the last minute for some filler or was that always kind of intended to be there? Were they not long enough and they just needed to, to add some stuff in or were they just trying to bring in? More of an audience because they were afraid maybe the sci-fi wasn't going to sell.
0: I do agree Uh the, the filler can be fun. It can be amusing. The visual side gags are kind of amusing. One is very, very scary. Uh, without spoiling it, uh, the, the alien uh, plays with uh, Nat Chan's mind. And uh, he sees something that um, is straight out of a horror film. So family-friendly Viewing right there for you, but uh, but yeah, it's really just Nat Chan and Wong Jing getting to act dumb with each other, and they're, they're happy to do it. I think they're friends in real life as well, so it's not a tough sell to <laughs> like do you want to hit on Charlotte Chung for 15 minutes? Okay, <laughs> uh, so so yeah, but but uh, he, his final sequence, uh, his final sort of descent into madness, I suppose, uh, starting off with uh, the, the bank robbery that doesn't go very well, I thought was um. What was very funny because uh, he's not an ace humorist either not but the way he goes about his actions and how he acts in those sections were good enough but instantly forgettable when uh, we relocate to Greece and uh, you got a lot of um, uh, added scope uh, in that regard as well uh, with uh, more cast joining the Greece section including uh, Richard and then uh, uh, it all ending up in, um, in this uh, hotter than hot uh, cave set that uh, is uh, adding upon the borrowing as you uh, so uh, call it. Uh, Thank god it's a sequence that is uh, laced with Tony Lung's. Action, you know, through and through. It's a big, big sequence. I'm sure they were down there for a, for an extended time, and uh, you you can see how warm it was down there with uh, Richard's uh, costume being wet in like a millisecond after the action kicks off. And it's uh, really a an uh, ace nice sequence to to have for for more uh, usage of uh, weapons, as we talked about with the size and all of that. And uh, when all is said and done, I mean, it, it, it is the uh, the 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 delightful buzz of the film comes from how well the action is executed and uh, it's it's sort of okay to forget about uh, what comedic uh, goals this film has because uh, Tony Long's team does so wonderfully but but then again it's all up for criticism as well because if these pieces doesn't they, they don't fit then all you have is the action and that that's kind of true at the same time as well but uh, I don't feel like uh, it's an overly clunky film despite you know we, we get there in the end and we're very happy to get to um, to what we uh, uh, to what we get to in the end uh, but um, I'm sure some international editing when selling this because they were obviously able to sell this on the strength of uh, Richard and Cynthia I'm sure some editing was done somewhere by someone uh, to make sure some Local comedy gets uh, gets ejected, and that would get to the sellable stuff in the West a little bit faster. I know the uh, the, the yoga sequence that I don't want to spoil. Really, it's a, I've seen it English dubbed, so um, I think at the very least they made a full English dub for the film. But I have a feeling that this went through some editing when going on export to get rid of the uh, rid of the sort of cringy stuff, and I wouldn't blame them. But uh, I don't mind. Uh, going through the 93 minutes um, as problematic pacing-wise and so forth as it is uh, because uh, the highlights are as strong as they are, you know. One thing we should spoil, uh, so I might as well ask you this, uh, the manifestation of uh, not the alien rock, but uh, the alien creature. How well did they design that, Paul?
1: For for fans of Hong Kong cinema, I mean, if you've ever seen... uh... The zombies in a Chinese ghost story. Okay, the the basement zombie. Yeah, the stop the, the stop motion zombies. Yeah, uh, this is like a, you know, a couple ancestors, an ancestor, a couple generations removed earlier than that. Without the motion, <laughs> it's it's pretty lifeless and uh, paper mache looking. Um, but it is what it is. So and there, it's clear that Wang Jing was working within a very finite budget and sci-fi is hard i mean which is again why at the start of the show i was lauding such pra- praise on uh the lewis ku film warriors of future because you know hong kong film has a mixed history with science fiction to be to be sure but with you know something like this you, you don't have to look at just the the alien rock or the the the, the alien creature or his his little I don't know if it was a UFO or a pyramid throne or or what it was that the, the sort of throne room, the final fight takes place in. You can just look to things like the prison. So there's a sequence where Andy Lau goes to prison and it's very clear not a prison for anybody who's been in Hong Kong or or even seen films like Prison on Fire. You can see that they're not actually in a prison. They're in a school court courtyard <laughs> <laughs> where they do volleyball and stuff. And there's no there's there's shots of characters talking there's no fence behind them, like <laughs> to keep them locked in it's just like oh okay let's just shoot here you can climb down um, thing <laughs> so it, it's it's that kind of film and you know you can look at stuff like that and you can go uh oh, and just again do the sort of uh, facepalm picard meme or you can just roll with it and and wait for the funny stuff to come along and, and wait for the the action sequences to come along and, you know, you can look at at things like that and understand that filmmaking is hard and sometimes you have an idea and you try to create that idea and it doesn't look exactly the way you wanted it to. And you just go with it. And, you know, Wong Jing films often end up that way, you know, that they, they just go with it. And sometimes you get uh, a sequence like uh, Jackie Chan dressed up as Chun-Li and sometimes you get a sequence like paper mache alien. So uh, what are you gonna do?
0: And uh, Richard even jumps that puppet. And uh, I want to believe, but this is like too clever for Wong Jing. That it's uh, a mild riff on Star Trek the motion picture, as as uh, his character merges with the alien, <laughs> like like the whole V'ger thing. But you know, yeah. I'm I'm pretty sure it's it, it needs to be a little bit more on the nose. Than that, then uh, Wong Jing, uh, he, you know, he's made a uh, he's made a living being on the nose, and I don't think that's necessarily you know looking back at uh, Star Trek the motion picture, but it but but it amused me to see uh, that oh yeah that happened, so Care Care of is no more or is he? You know sequel? <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> well, one thing's true: Wang Jing never met an intellectual property that he could not just rip off. Be it Street Fighter or City Hunter or Steven Spielberg or what have you,
0: you can get away with it. And um, maybe, you know, may, maybe it was recent enough for Hong Kongers to um, go with the late 70s, early 80s iconic Spielberg entries and still get like that recognition factor in place. Raiders wasn't that old, but uh, obviously, uh, Close Encounters was like end of 70s and obviously 80s. So, um, i'm sure that stayed in in the consciousness to a degree with uh, with the hong kong audiences as well good enough fun problematic and uh, forgettable and you don't have to wait for the stuff that uh, that you like if you do feel that the comedy is really cloying and uh, like has no place in this mixture so um, that's why i've uh, i'm happy to uh, to return um, to it. Uh, I know it's been um, like rumored to get like this, uh, either US or UK boutique label Blu-ray release so it's going to be interesting because those labels have a built-in audience that gives any announcement a shot which is, you know, not, not a bad thing. Don't need to near read uh, uh, reviews to make up your mind. It looks uh, good. It's got Cynthia Richard in it, but uh, I wonder what uh, a 2023 audience would make of this, if this is even valid, <laughs> you know, as a film. But uh, it certainly is a demonstration of uh, what Hong Kong cinema did, and the the formula would uh, earn uh, Wong Jing all the money, eventually, being, you know, all over the place. Uh, uh, that would uh, not be a problem. I'm not saying he did like tons of UFO, Spielberg films in the future, but to have the formula go from light and dark, family-friendly, to uber-violent was not a problem in, uh, in subsequent films. So uh, it's not lacking in quality, that's
1: for sure. Uh, yeah, just a couple of final points. If you are a historian, especially a historian with regard to uh, uh, ancient Greek and Roman mythology, uh, you probably want to avoid the, the, the final bit of uh, explanation that the uh, alien creature gives because it's way off the mark in terms of... history mystery. Yeah, I don't think Wong Jing cracked a book when he was okay. kind of writing out that sequence. He's just like, oh, yeah, we're in Athens, Venus this time, 2000 years ago. This kind of makes sense. Now, it doesn't just forget about it. There are some uh, interesting uh, smaller roles and cameos to pay attention for for uh, Hong Kong cinema fans. I think uh, Ken mentioned that uh, Philip Kofay uh, has a small role, supporting role here. Always nice to see him. Seth Keen. Also, uh, oddly, kind of shows up uh, to do some stuff.
0: He, he he never gets to do it on screen, but he's promised the, uh, that uh, there's lotion to be rubbed on uh, ladies at the pool. Yeah. And then he exits <laughs> the scene, but they never do that scene. I was like, don't do that to, to the respectable elder and uh, drag him into your lecherous stuff. But But yeah
1: this is the guy who fought who fought against bruce lee you, you, you got to give him some uh some down downtime scenes as well right yes I mean, so so yeah I, there are also a couple of other people to pay attention to uh actor bean bean a child actor who plays pin bean here you know was a kind of a hot property in this era and uh did uh you know did child roles for a couple of things you know a couple of years i got a Respectable number of films before he retired, retired from the industry. Um, you also can see here um, uh, early appearance by uh, Pauline Kwan, Kwan Poi Lam, who was also in the the sort of uh, "It's a Mad Mad World" films and um, child actor in uh, of the era as well. That's equally recognizable. Like uh, being she also kind of retired early and uh, went on to do other things. Ah, uh, Shing Foyan has a very brief cameo uh, in in the prison sequence. You know, always nice to to spot people in these smaller roles uh, when you you know they get some more renown. He's obviously very renowned as a, being a baddie in a lot of films uh, later. Um, also, pay attention for veteran actress Maureen Yu Yu Lin who shows up in a very sort of typical you know how wang Jing is going to use her. As kind of a pretty girl, uh, ugly girl foil, um, which, which is a shame because she's such a good actress. And, you know, it's always, I always like seeing her do stuff where they let her emote a lot more rather than just kind of be the sight gag that uh, she's used for here. But it's fun to see her show up anyway.
0: As for availability, I, I, I mentioned that I've heard a rumor about it getting a re release, but it's actually quite available right now. Uh, there's an, actually an imprint uh, Hong Kong DVD and Blu ray available. Uh, I've seen it on Digital HD uh, from the US iTunes store. Looks a little bit smudgy, the print, but obviously an uh, upgrade of sorts. Uh, It's got the old-style English subtitles so it hasn't gone through a big uh, retranslation or anything, but that's fine. There's also an English-friendly German double bill DVD where, where the main feature is Magnificent Warriors with Michelle Yeoh and Magic Crystal as a bonus film. Uh, And and that is uh, with English subtitles and uh, Cantonese and even English dubbing. So uh, you could get it uh, uh, that way both in uh, Europe, both in the East and uh, both in the West because the US iTunes store, I think it's exclusive to that. Uh, Certainly not on the Swedish one, perhaps on the UK one. It, this uh, gives you the opportunities perhaps Amazon as well, I haven't checked Amazon uh, the, on um, on Amazon video or anything, but it gives you the opportunity to um, try out the title via a rental if you're for instance uh, attached to the um, to the iTunes uh, store uh, look for it uh, in the future for scholars and academics to break down <laughs> the magic and I will say, of magic
1: because uh, I, I did pick up the iTunes version and I don't think it's been remastered, but it does look upscaled.
0: Yeah, it was a little bit smudgy, so either they've applied some uh, noise removal to it, but it's definitely better than, than the DVD version from AR, So, But it's not a major jump, though. So yeah. uh, That's why DVD, I think, is uh, very much uh, sufficient um, and all of that. Like, uh, And maybe you don't need to see the Alien Puppet in HD necessarily, because uh, you, you can just look at that from outside your screen into the screen and it will fall over. Yes, it, it, it doesn't look like it's been held <laughs> up uh, uh, as such. You know, I mentioned to Richard like uh, like a puff of wind would just uh, disintegrate that thing.
1: I, I was wondering if like the scene where you know he ends up uh, sort of crashing on it, if if he, that actually broke.
0: I was no, about to say like the guaylo, <laughs> don't break the fucking thing, don't break it. Like uh, you'll break it, and you you'll pay for it. Looks it looks dead and creepy. I mean, it's supposed to, but still, that's a. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, that's kind of nightmare fuel for the kids. Uh, you know, never mind the the, the the like the body horror stuff with uh, Charlotte Chung and all of that. Like, look at that thing; that, that'll give you nightmares for for weeks. Maybe you should try that. You have kids. Like, is that creepy? <laughs> no.
1: I like sleep. I don't want to have to get up in the middle of the night to console them.
0: Ah, Wong Jing. Wong Jing. I dreamt of Wong Jing. That's it. Uh, hope you enjoyed a sort of rare mixture episode where we uh, share some background and our views and discuss the film in detail and uh, as, as we've said already this rare sort of uh, first hand account of making Hong Kong films courtesy of Richard Norton. It was a treat to shoot the shit with richard about this thing and um this thing that is magic crystal and other stuff and uh, i want to thank richard again for being very giving with his time and wish uh, wishing best of luck on future product uh, uh, projects and certainly look for the mad max film uh, furiosa coming in uh, 2024 as things stand now featuring richard doing fight uh, coordinating on the film i heard a little snippet that he might appear in it but not as much as in um fury road he had a you know a couple of scenes that are very distinct look in fury road uh, richard that is but uh all, all the thanks to uh to richard for being there giving with his time and obviously paul for helping to enhance the discussion uh from this uh from this uh academic view because uh, you have an academic background so this uh, this suits you discuss uh Wong Jing <laughs> then that's what you went to school for to discuss uh Wong Jing films yeah
1: and my parents cry about it every day <laughs> <laughs>
0: like do you talk like uh Wong Kar Wai films have you talked days of being
1: wild with Ken no that, that that's the good stuff we 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 both did the Wong Kar Wai thing for a class and we <laughs> We know
0: how that ends up. <laughs> you know, in all honesty, I have thought about it. Like, maybe I should, like, finally fill in the gaps of Wonka I, Wai. I have a feeling I've got, I'm not going to have anything to say. I mean, I've disliked a couple of films I've seen. I don't see the depth and the poignancy and the nuance of longing and all of that. But I have a feeling I'm just going to be kind of stumped. Because I haven't seen, for instance, Days of Being Wild. But uh, I just have a feeling that uh, even in The Mood for Love... I've, I was on board with like 60-70% of it and then it lost me. Literally, I, I I don't know what this is symbolizing right now. And uh, I, I enjoyed the talking between the characters. Now I've lost all emotional touch to it all.
1: I, I've not seen every um, one Wai film. I've seen a majority of them. And for me, the theme tends to be kind of repetitive. And I mean, I know that aesthetically from a visual sense and from a from the sense of I guess character writing there's a lot of nuance and difference but you know the longing in something like uh, in the mood for love and the longing in something like uh, happy together comes across the same to me somehow you know even though it's different people in different situations it 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 seems to be a theme. But then again, I mean, I'm somebody who likes other themes. You know, I like aliens and Magic Crystal and aliens and Wisely's Mysterious File. And, <laughs> you know, so I'm not one to knock somebody who loves that stuff and appreciates that stuff. No, no, no. It's just not stuff that I like to return to, you know, for, for as down as I am on. Magic crystal for some aspects of it. I could easily return to it. i I, I could easily return to and will return to a film like uh, you know, a tale from the East. I don't think I would want to see uh, Wonka Weiss happy together again, having having seen it. Um it just doesn't have the repeat for me appeal
0: i i i get that and i remember seeing that uh, renting it because it was available um here and i mean i love those guys and uh, but but i i just could never connect to it and uh, maybe it's my sort of disconnect with uh, with artistic cinema in general i suppose there are exceptions to that but uh, i remember that there's a shot in um, up together which shows uh tony lung lighting a cigarette for half a minute minutes looks pretty and all of that and obviously he's so iconic but I couldn't really be immersed in that stylistic excursion of seeing him coolly light a cigarette and I'm not making fun of it. It was just like, i it, it's not a film making choice, that's for me. This, uh, yeah. and, and as a result I, I don't remember Dick about uh, the romance and that uh, conflict and that character dynamic. I'm sorry to say because I love, uh, love Leslie and I love Tony. It's one of those things that I you're allowed to deselect things, even though they seem essential. You know what I mean? Like, uh, Unless we're talking future cops, that's not uh, you're not allowed to deselect that, people. <laughs> that's a required view. <laughs> no, no argument, for sure. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this little special uh, on uh, Magic Crystal featuring uh, Richard Norton, featuring myself, and featuring Paul Fox, and for all your Podcast on Fire Network needs, go to podcastonfire.com. You'll find us wherever you find podcasts. Follow us on social media. Give us some feedback on this episode. We we don't have a chance to do these things because uh, we're not uh, connected and can uh, rope in um, uh, actors and uh, casting crew to do these things. So it's a very rare occasion where this happens. So I hope you liked it. Give us some feedback, uh, good or bad, on uh, social media and what have you. But um, that's us. I'm going to leave you to uh, plug your show. Regardless if you do one show this year, you have a show. So, why don't you plug that for kids?
1: We have a show. Yes, it is called East Screen West Screen. And you can hear me and uh, my long term co host, uh, Kevin Ma, uh, now officially uh, has a, having a Mrs. Ma. So, we're very happy for him this year. But I don't know if he's going to have time uh, to record as much as I would like. Uh, but, um, you know, we'll see what happens throughout the year. We actually did two episodes last year, but one of them was unfortunately lost. Uh, to the ether so we ended up with a one episode season <laughs> last year so right now we've matched for 2023 what we did in 2022 let's see if we can exceed it
0: what what the uh, film um, or films did you record that was lost
1: and the, the lost episode was for everything uh, everywhere all at once
0: well, well it's not too late to jump on that again it's in uh, at the time of recording it's a hot uh, hot thing having won awards it might even win uh, some awards awards big ones big golden ones further down the line
1: yep yep it's uh making news and taking names as is a uh, rrr so i'm very happy at the success of uh, of both of those and uh you know we'll see what 2023 brings excellent well i encourage you to uh, to definitely keep it going even
0: if it's only one or two episodes uh, per year i'll certainly be there for sure so that that's us thank you everybody for listening i have been been here with me was paul fox so you have the honor of saying goodbye
1: bye-bye <laughs>